Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for um, all the amazing and inspiring comments, tweets, emails that you've sent to themomentbk at gmail.com. Write me about anything. Remember the one rule? Don't pitch me a screenplay idea. Don't uh, send a screenplay. Teleplay. Other than that, Send anything you want. Happy to engage in the conversation. My guest today, Vanessa Selbst. I think three World Series of Poker bracelets. One of the brightest people I've ever met. Normally I do these intros before they're here, but Vanessa's walking into the room right now uh, and is going to hear, sort of has heard the the tail end of this. She's an incredibly accomplished woman. She... um, has not only won World Series bracelets, she's won around the world. She's also a Yale-educated lawyer with um, a strong social justice mission. We're going to talk about how to reconcile these dual aspects of her personality. And uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. This is fun. Yeah, it's, um, I guess you and I met at a charity poker tournament. That's true. And uh, and became, to use an old-fashioned expression, became fast friends. Yes, we did. And uh, which has been a delight for me. Yeah. Um, I'm opening my thing. I did write a few questions down. You know, just out of some uh, instinct towards. I'm really, you know, mostly trying to kind of use this friendship because I'm hoping that if there ever is a rounder sequel in the future that I'm going to, you know— be written into the script so that's that's yeah, the main yeah. thing let me just say <laughs> let me just say this <laughs> that if you're telling somebody um that you're going to use the friendship or something <laughs> well my chances of it's going to have to it's going to be a, it's the long con because uh you know i think my chances of getting written in are slim so i'm really gonna have to work it pretty so hard. but you think by telling me right up front i just want to be in rounders and that's a, the best way to make it happen i'm a straight shooter i don't know i'm hoping that either that works or you know i mean what's the you know just uh, yeah uh, so when people write you uh, an email uh, like a friend or somebody who hasn't spoken to them in a while when you uh do you prefer that they first just ask the favor then get to the sort of uh, like hi how are you yeah where do you like do you want them to sandwich the request in between pleasantries or or do you prefer that they just I see. I would. I would rather people just sort of ask for the request of whatever it is. I think the. Um, you know what? It's funny because there's there's a number of ways to do it, right? There's like the hi, how are you, and ask a bunch of questions, but you don't really want a response. Then there's the people that just go, hope you're well, and you're like, okay. I mean, now you're really just saying That's like this, bottom of the barrel. This is like the most obligatory possible. I really don't want you to respond. But, but like, because if, if hope you're well isn't implied in every email, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you should write some emails like if you're upset with someone, just like hope you're doing crappy. Hope or, you're, yeah, hope you're um, uh, barely hanging on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hope your life has been mediocre. You know, you can actually just kind of change that to fit like how you're feeling about your relationship at the time. But yeah, I have a total policy. If I 
like if I were going to write you for a favor, mm-hmm. and, and we're like at, in touch, but if, we're, if I were going to write you for a favor, I would say, hey, I have a quick thing I need. Because I'd rather just, I don't want to, I don't want to con or snow right. anybody. Yeah. But I, it, 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 the I might mo- use that. Yeah, just go right at just it. Just go for it. Because it, it, first of all, it creates the impression of being very straightforward. Right. Whether you, right? Whether you are or not, it's like, oh, what a, what a straightforward person. Uh-huh. That's somebody I can. So yeah. you think you've, have you tested both methods, like scientifically? Well, I haven't done like a double blind. Okay. But what I have done is um, noticed how annoyed I get when people ask me things in a way that they're trying to disguise their true right. um, intention or motive. Like, don't go three emails back right. and forth or don't want to. Here's what I don't like. Hey, we haven't seen each other in a long time. Should we put a lunch or drinks on the books? Right. And then, um, by the way, blah, this blah, thing. blah. By the way, <laughs> could you get my kid a job? <laughs> you know? I, I really hope this entire thing, by the way, is just pet peeves with Brian and Vanessa because I think we could go on for. Oh, for well, a in while. your world, yeah. I'm sure that there are tons of. Um, like, uh, how many times in a, in a month do you get asked? Some kind of like poker related favor, like to stake somebody. Oh yeah, well there's that. I mean, I get the random emails all the time, and you know, yeah, for sure there's that. But there's there's just a lot of. It seems to be not the the straightest shooting profession. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe none of them are. I've never really been in another career any you know very seriously. But uh, it just seems like there's so many underlying motives all the time that I'm constantly like, I don't know. I'm constantly shocked by the, by, by, you know, just how deep the levels run and, you know, how, you mean how, how deep the, the, the levels of, um, the the levels of con run or how deep the, the levels of, um, distrust or like manipulation, like, like how long the game is, you know, some people have the long game. They really have it down, and they start it early. And you could call it, you know, manipulation. You could call it networking. I suppose there's a, you know, a thin line between them. But, you know, when people are setting up relationships because of what, you know, they they have a trajectory and they something they want to accomplish, and so they start the relationship from an early point, or even like the levels of the relationship. I, this is kind of a boring topic because I'm not at liberty to like give any more. Sp- Specifics, no, which would be way more interesting. I don't think it's that boring because, um, first of all, people can extrapolate, and they can also, they can also. I think uh, I know I can think about that in terms of things that have happened in their in their own mm-hmm. lives. Because w- what you're really talking about, I think, is being like uh, a young, successful person, and then I don't imagine you started with an awareness that you might be getting played, right? Definitely not. No, I, I'm pretty much, I don't know whether you would call it like naive or just like, I, I guess people would be surprised to know this about me that I'm, I'm like, yeah, a little bit naive. Like I've become more cynical, but, um, with respect to people in relationships, I just expect that, you know, if you say your intention, that that's your intention and yeah, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think that it, that is right. You know, I think anytime you kind of come into the spotlight, whatever your profession is in a very short amount of time, there's all of these questions you have to start to ask with respect to like, what is this person, you know, why are they getting close to me? And, you know, especially if it's someone getting very close very quickly, you know. Well, yeah, you have to think to yourself, is that person using me for a small part in rounders? Right, exactly, which is... 
you immediately have True. to sort of wonder yeah. if that's what's going on. No, but uh, that's why I'd rather just say it right up front. You know. Yeah, you're doing the email thing, but no. Uh, here's there's a bunch of interesting stuff to unpack about this. Um, because poker players and you know great poker players talk about it and always have in terms of one long game. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there, I think there are a lot of poker players. Um, I think the majority, I mean, the the overwhelming majority would probably say that that's just part of the game in a way. I mean, you know, you're taught in a, in a way bluffing and deceit and all of these things, you know, obviously in a poker hand, that's definitely part of the game. And then there becomes blurred lines, you know, is it uh, is it kind of wrong or unethical or shady to do it to get someone in a poker game? Is it then to extend it to kind of the the whole kind of poker industry, you know, there have been obviously a lot of, you know, kind of bad seeds uh, in the poker world. You know, right now we're operating in an unregulated market, which is kind of makes it ripe for a lot of, you know, really shady activity because there are very few ramifications for any kind of, uh, you know, bad behavior. So, you know, companies have been started based on lies and they just crumble and fall. And then, you know, you're kind of, they're kind of free rolling, you know, a lot of these people. Yeah. But what's that thing that people, all, the, the, the story about poker players has always been, and it's one of the things that uh, it's, uh, I've always found so, so compelling and I've seen it. Um, you know, I've been in a poker room with, uh, Phil Locke, who, you know, is my bud. And, uh, I've seen Phil. Um, I once said to Phil, can I, um, let me have 500 bucks because I needed it to go play across the room. And he just threw me a $10,000 chip. Yeah. And it is true that poker players, or in my experience, it seems like poker players are incredibly trusting of one another. And in that one area, usually make, make good. Has, have you seen that change? No, I definitely don't think it's changed um, in that respect. I think from a person to person level, you know, any high stakes poker player will tell you, you know, I have a, a, note on my phone or my computer with a list of like 100 debts, whether it's, you know, this person owes me 200, I owe this person 500, you know, sometimes it's way more than that. And it kind of goes unpaid for a long time. And you just kind of know that, it, it, you know, it's it's fine. And also a lot of staking deals happen, you know, someone will put me into a tournament for, you know, maybe I'm playing $100,000 buying tournament, they might buy 25% of my action, there's no contract that, you know, they give me $25,000 or a little bit more with markup. And, you know, if I win a million, I give them 250 back. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we have no contract. I, you know, we're, we're joking that, you know, uh, Dan Coleman this summer had the ultimate opportunity to kind of to like just vanish from the poker community because, you know, of course, winning the one drop, uh, he won it for $15 million. That was the million dollar tournament this summer yeah. at the World Series of Poker. And of course, he sold most of his action. And I'm sure there weren't contracts, you know, so he paid out. I mean, I'm guessing I'm assuming he paid out, but he paid out what was probably something between 12 and 14 million dollars based on a verbal agreement that really couldn't be proved at the end of the day. And even if it could be proved, you know, between the, the lack of, you know, as a lawyer, I look at this and I'm like, okay, there's a, you know, a number of competing things at, at play here. One is, you know, a verbal contract is technically uh, as binding as a written contract in terms of, you know, reliance. Study, and if there's reliance, exactly. And you study contract law. That being said, of course, written contracts are stronger just because the proof is there and there's an assumption of, you know, intent and everything and like complete that. And the idea that the complete agreement is represented. Yeah. Exactly. And there are just fewer questions. And so, you know, that casts some doubt. And then that, you know, coupled with the fact that courts notoriously don't really understand the gambling world. They don't really understand 
uh, contracts related to, you know, purchasing equity rather than purchasing a thing or purchasing like a real thing with real value. The idea of purchasing equity, I think they've... Because sort of, it's sort of like purchasing an option agreement. And right. those have... When you purchase an option agreement, um, even if there's a verbal... In the old days, a verbal thing, it's backed up by a tremendous amount of paperwork. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so you know, I think uh, we but were... you're saying he paid out. You're saying that... You, I'm that, assuming he paid out. I mean, I mean you would know had, if he didn't. It yeah, would be public course. if he did. Yeah, of course he paid out. You know, there's a, there's a thing, you know, there's just so much... There are so many transactions that go on on a day-to-day basis that require uh, your name to be good within the poker world, that require people to kind of know you and trust you and know that you have a good reputation. You know, if you want to be successful, you want to get, maybe there's a really big high stakes game that you want to play and you need to get staked. Or maybe, you know, you showed up to a place, you know, this happens all the time. You fly to a tournament, you bring a you know, certain amount of money with you and then there's a higher stakes game going on than you thought was going to happen. And you say to your friend, oh, can you lend me $30,000? You know, I mean, you need to have a good reputation for those things uh, to happen. And I think that in probably like 99% of transactions, I'm sure they go off smoothly. But of course you hear about the ones that don't go off smoothly. And I, I do think there have been more and more, um, you know, and, and there's the things that, you know, the, 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 this guy ran off with this guy's money and, you know, those come up all the time. But I think what's uh, far more interesting is the number of like really major scandals that, you know, have kind of come to light more recently um, that I think it has this, you know, snowball effect. Once one major scandal happens and then the perpetrators go unpunished, then people realize the risk isn't really there. And uh, are, are you, you know. talking about... Um Collusion scandals, or are you talking about um, online scandals? Uh, all sorts of scandals. I mean, there, you know, I, and once again, I'm not, you know, saying poker is like shady or, you know, whatever. I, mean, I think once we get the market regulated, this will all change because, um, you know, in the, the internet, the, the online market regulated, or um, the fact that we, if we want to play poker in, in, in New York, we should just go to somebody's house or some underground club. All of it. I mean, I think we just have to change the perception of poker. I mean, poker, uh, you know, is a, is a mind game. It's it's far more, in my opinion, like chess or backgammon or something like that than it is like the other casino games. I think it's just unfortunate that it happens to take place in casinos much of the time because that changes people's association. And so once we can change the perception and regulate, then I think a lot of uh, these things will happen. But to give some examples of things that happen, I mean, everything from, you know, running a site that had loopholes where people could see each other's cards uh, and cheat that way. There are, you know, other things where this guy was like cheating at tournaments he had a reporter that was like standing behind people and like looking at their cards and giving him hand signals and That's he was like big sid in uh, the flamingo I mean, kid it was movie. Unreal, yeah. you know and he he was like uh you know winning you know he won i don't know how much he won he was actually he was disqualified it came to light when he was disqualified from my final table that i played in france in 2010 but i don't think anything ever happened to him i mean he won well, it's weird because sometimes you know, some things that, that people – like, you know, there was that big scam years ago when people felt that Men the Master was – he had backed so mm-hmm. many people in tournaments that um, there was this question of whether they were allowed to play their own uh, – for their own benefit, really, right? Yeah. Or whether their job was to uh, move chips mm-hmm. to men. Yeah. But uh, – but then, like, very soon thereafter, the behavior – that just became everybody's behavior, staking as many people as – Interesting. You, I mean, if you think about it, that was a huge scandal. Yeah. And um, not, not that he got punished or ever was convicted of doing anything r- wrong, but then that behavior kind of got codified, didn't it? Where people have pieces – I mean – Yeah, but I think there's an expectation. I mean, people have pieces of each other all the time. There's a kind of expectation and un- unwritten but – often spoken expectation that you don't collude you don't you know if you have a piece of something you don't change the way that you play i mean theoretically you're supposed to be doing that you know i know probably a lot of people you're right probably aren't but i don't think anyone did it let me i don't know if there was ever i don't really 
know if there's ever proof of men. He certainly doesn't have a good reputation in the community. But of course, you know, at a certain point, if you don't really run the risk of facing legal damage, then you just say, okay, well, either if you're a good poker player, it's probably more valuable to have a good reputation. But if you're not a very good poker player, the expected value of cheating your ass off is probably a lot higher. And for men, you know, if, if you know, if that's what he was doing and bringing, chi- he was supposed to supposedly printing chips and bringing them in. Right, that just, was a separate, yeah, I, right. You know, I forgot all sorts about of that, stuff yeah. like that. But so, I mean, you know. No, no, that's never been uh, proven. But the part that seemed clear was that in what a four hundred person tournament, he would have a piece of probably of, of some big number right. of people, and like, they had to dump chips to him or something. And I, that was yeah. the allegation was if you have that many people, yeah, um, who you're really putting in, right? I think it was more than an allegation for him. I mean, I think yeah. I think because there are plenty of people that have horses, but they don't collude at the poker table, you know. And I think um, I, I think that's what it comes down to is like. Well, you can be an ethical person and just do the right thing all the time, but let's throw ethics out the window because I don't think it's that unreasonable in poker a lot of, with a lot of people to throw ethics out the window. Throwing ethics out the window, I think if you're just looking from a strict EV perspective, I just think it's more plus EV to honor your debts. Long term, for sure. Long term, if you're a winning poker player. But if you're a losing poker player, I don't necessarily think that's true. Well, it depends on how long you want to be. See, even if you're a losing poker player, if you want to stay in the thing, you probably have to do something to safeguard yeah. your reputation because right. otherwise um, the world is still a small world at a high at the high level. Or do you mm, not think so? I don't know. I mean, there, yeah, it's a small world. And sure, you know, there are some people that are known cheaters, but a lot of them still play, you know, and there are people that defend them. Will you sit at the table kinda, with them? Yeah, people do. I mean, everybody does. It's just like a thing. I don't know. It's, what do you mean everybody does? I mean, there's just some people that have been known, not necessarily for cheating at poker necessarily. I mean, there are definitely a lot of people that are suspected for cheating online that continue to travel to live tournaments that people, you know, play with. Um, And it's difficult. I mean, you know, kind of poker stars, the major online company kind of does everything they can do in terms of kind of dealing with the stuff in terms of the virtual felt, but, you know, in terms of the online, you know, none of the major online players, I mean, I'm sorry, live players have stepped up and said, okay, well, if this player is known to be, participate in, you know, wrongful activity, then we're not, you know, they haven't, like, banned them or anything like that. You mean, like, so the the other night I walked into a poker game and Mm -hmm. there were these two brothers there. I didn't know either of them, and and one of them had played in this game a lot, I'd heard. I was newly invited into this game. And they were sitting next to one another, and they didn't do any, I saw no evidence of collusion. But I did have this moment of feeling like, you know, because I hadn't been playing a lot lately, and I had this feeling of, um, would, I, how, would I even be able to spot it? You know, would I right. really be able to know? Um, yeah. They were both good card players. I don't, I, you know, would I even, how, how do you safeguard, protect yourself in, in, uh, from that when I mean, you so show I, up so in a game? So I think, like, the how first thing— personally? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing to, to say, by the way, is, like, in this discussion, I mean, a lot of people talk about— collusion and they talk about cheating because it's juicy and it's interesting. I mean, in 99% of poker games, this does not happen. I mean, I think it's important to realize that, um, number one. So, you know, people that are thinking about going to play poker aren't, like, overly worried about it. Um, it's just not usually a thing. But, I mean, I, there's just, like, a number of things you can do. I mean, I think you can, you know, if you're worried about marked cards, you can just, you know, put your hands over your cards. Um, you can just really pay attention to the, I mean, a lot of the times, a lot of, you know, a lot of people that are cheating are pretty obvious about it. And I think they get caught pretty quickly. Um, I think that's what's made the, the, some of the more nefarious online scandals. So, uh, so difficult is that they're, they're more difficult to catch. Like there was a big one where, you know, a guy planted, had been planting Trojan, uh, viruses on people's computers 
with no the virus did nothing to your computer. The only thing it did was a sh- uh, remote screen sharing software. So then the guy would log in and want and look at your computer while you were playing high stakes, and he stole millions that way. So I think those and things. Did he get caught? Uh, no. I mean, not. He I didn't mean, have to give the money back. I don't even know if they know who it is. I mean, you if they know, know who it is. Um, no, I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I think there's some speculation as to who it is, but it, it's kind of, you know. How did people discover it by somehow they found the virus, that the virus existed? So, or they saw that no. the, they, they saw the pattern of, pl- of play was messed up? No, that's not even it. They uh, He got, uh, you know, I, I, he got greedy, as they always do. And, you know, I think he, you know, EPT Barcelona at the tournament of the European Poker Tour, he kind of went into someone's hotel room. And to plant the virus, and the guy came back, and his, and, you know, he was middle in the middle of the act, and the laptop was missing. He wasn't there. He had taken the laptop out. He thought this guy was going to be gone. He would he would wait for people to be kind of deep in a tournament, and then go into their hotel room. And I guess this guy must have busted, even despite having a ton of chips. And he came back to the to the room, and his laptop wasn't there. And so that kind of you That's know, a sick story. I don't know how I haven't read it. Anyway. Was it reported thing. in all the magazines? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think so. It was kind of big news. It was last year at the EPT, but uh, I somehow missed it. Yeah. Um, all right, let's back up. Yeah. I where this is great. I could talk about kind of the state of this. I'm so interested in hearing you talk about all of it. But um, I want to talk about you more specifically for people who, you know, for people who don't know who you are, um, and you know, the easy sort of tag that people always say is the winningest uh, female poker player, which is a weird thing because you are that, but you're also just one of the winningest poker players of this era, right? In terms of just yeah. like money won in tournaments. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, I guess. Male or female. That's um, correct. Uh, the best is when people ask me, like, how does it feel to be uh, like the winningest female of all time? I'm like, or how does it feel to be a great female poker player? I'm like, I have really nothing to compare it to. I'm not really sure. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt your no, uh, that's, question. Um, yeah. No, that's, you, you didn't interrupt it. You're kind of like uh, speaking to it, which is, um, but I know that this issue of just being seen as a competitor mm-hmm. is one that you've grappled with for a long time. Isn't it? The issue of being seen as a competitor. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the baseball story. Sure. And yeah. so, you know, how old are you? Now? Yeah, I'm you, 30. Right. I mean, you're still incredibly young to be, you know, to accomplish things that you've uh, accomplished. And there's this there's a story that's been written about you a, a, a few times. But I do think that the people listening might not all, all know, which is you were a serious baseball player, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed baseball a lot, and throughout high school and middle school, I was, you know, I was always on my, like, traveling teams when I was growing up, and on the, you know, during middle school and everything like that. Playing on teams that were primarily compi- comprised in, in jun- of boys in junior high school. Yeah, all, all male. All male, mm-hmm. and then, and you were a pitcher. Mm-hmm. Correct. And is the story true, I just want to, uh, that, I mean, you tell it, but is, is it true that um, you didn't even really get a tryout? Yeah. So basically what ended up happening was I was, um, you know, in my freshman year, I wasn't the best baseball player of all time, but I really loved it. And I was, uh, you know, we had four pitchers um, on my freshman team and I was either the third or the fourth best. I mean, it was not that good. But between, you know, but they take everyone on the freshman team. And between my freshman and sophomore years, um, I was determined, you know, and I'm uh, I'm not someone who necessarily like is committed to working super hard at things that I don't love, but I loved baseball and I worked really, really hard at it. And, you know, I was pitching every day during the off season. I mean, throwing a ball against the wall if that's what I had to do. And so I was super pumped to show up to sophomore year and uh, and try out for the varsity team. And uh, they had a number of, like a series of tryouts, I guess it was maybe like two weeks worth of tryouts for the whole team. Maybe it wasn't that long. Maybe it was a week. I don't really remember. But I remember, you know, I would show up every day 
and they would give all these people chances to pitch. And I kept, you know, asking, you know, toward three or four days went by and they hadn't given me an opportunity yet. And I said, you know, and, and multiple people had gone two or three times. And I said, and you hadn't gotten a pitch. Once. I hadn't gotten a pitch once. So I said, you know, when are you going to give me a chance? They said, don't worry, don't worry. You know, we're going to give you a chance. And <laughs> the worst part of it was one night there was a, a tryout specifically for pitchers and catchers because they wanted to kind of, you know, see them more specifically. And so it was an evening. It was an evening tryout. And I showed up. And there were two catchers there, and I was the only pitcher that actually showed up to the tryout, I guess because everybody else had gotten their tryout. And instead of letting me throw, they actually just canceled the practice. So, you know, fast forward to, you know, a few days later, and they're posting the sheet for who made the team. And, you know, my friends are saying, you know, I was, of course, I was like, you know, so upset and so where I was like, there's no way they're going to, you know, put me on the team. And my friends were saying, oh, I mean, it's obvious that they're just going to automatically accept you because we don't have enough pitchers. And, like, that's why... You know, that's probably why you didn't get a tryout. And, and no, they just, uh, I didn't make the team. And uh, they literally did not let me throw once despite, you know, like, you know, kind of pushing for myself. And so, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a major deal. It was a big thing. You know, I kind of went to play softball, but. Uh, and, but what know. did you, so uh, as you know, like, uh, you know, the thing that I'm always interested in because is how people who accomplish remarkable things process these huge moments. And um, I, I'm just wondering, how you um like did you go to the coaches dur- during this did you what happened inside of you cuz like there are obvious lessons i think that are the 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 clear lessons you you take from something like this you know not letting other people control your fate but what did you learn about human nature through that and then uh, where did you channel the the anger? Sure. Like, yeah. What did you do with the anger? Yeah, I mean, I had a ton of rage <laughs> at that moment. I mean, that was the like the first time that i kind of knew what just like a true injustice felt like. And, yeah. you know, that was definitely, if, if you want to point to a moment that sort of spark, sparked my fight for social justice and my, you know, feeling of just like, a, you know, a, a really uh, sort of blanking on the word, but um, just really visceral feeling that I get now when social justice, like social injustice takes place. I mean, I think that was definitely the beginning of it. And I, I remember, you know, when they post that, I, I mean, I wanted to slam someone's head against the wall. I, you know, I stormed to the coach's office and I demanded they talk to me. And they, of course, you know, slammed the door on me. They slammed the door on you? Yeah. What do you mean? And um, What high school is this? You know, uh, Montclair High School. In New Jersey. Yeah. They, and, they uh, slammed the door on you? Yeah, they were basically like, we're not, you know, we're not. Because, you know, they had posted the list that day and they, you know, they were treating me like I was just, you know, a couple people had been cut. So they were, you know, like, we're not discussing who we cut and who we didn't cut, you know. And, and you were the only girl. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I was the only girl. And so... You know, so we said, you know, I, you know, I had to speak to the principal. Then we set up a meeting with everybody. And, you know, for uh, I didn't really know. I mean, there was a series of discussions. I was thinking about filing a lawsuit at the end of the day. I mean, after a series of meetings, when it became clear what happened, I mean, I think the I don't remember whether the coaches technically ended up resigning. I mean, that was the last year that they coached there. Oh, so um, you, they, those coaches were not invited back in some way. Yes, that's correct. I don't oh, know if it was like, well, that's, I mean, yeah, and it, and it, it seems like, um, I just imagine on so many levels, it, it must have, um, I mean, it just must have driven you crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was just like to work that hard for something that was just so supremely unfair. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, what did it tell it you? <laughs> what did it tell you? What did you pick up about um, uh, the prisms through which certain people look at things? L- like, you know... Because you're really good at, I think, 
at a card table and through study figuring out who people are, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that these people had this level of kind of rigidity in their rigidity in their uh, in their view that they yeah. couldn't see you. I mean, I think it's a great question because I don't know is the answer. I mean, there are a number of possibilities. I mean, one possibility is they just remembered me from last year and decided that I wasn't worth giving a tryout and really just didn't understand. I mean, I think you see that a lot with kind of uh, things that happen like this where uh, some sort of member of minority group gets discriminated against in some way where the discriminator truly doesn't understand the way that they're discriminating. And so it's possible that they just viewed me as another player and just thought that I probably sucked and it wasn't worth it to them. Uh, There's a possibility that really just didn't want a woman on their team. And uh, so it was decidedly discriminatory. Um, And I don't really know which one it was. I mean, it's kind of tough to say, but, but I mean, I think that that happens a lot. You know, I see that. I think you see like when, uh, you know, that some group exerts some sort of privilege, you know, just like, you know, has some sort of privilege. They're completely unaware of it. I mean, I think they were at least seemingly completely unaware that they owed some obligation towards making sure, like going out of their way to make sure that I got a fair tryout. Yeah, but I guess I'm also wondering, did the effect that that had on you, did it for a time make you more guarded? Uh, were you able to meet new people or new situations or new institutions with open eyes or or uh, were your expectations, uh, I better be, I better be uh, ready to be a combatant. Like, how did that? I mean, I probably definitely, I probably developed a little bit of a chip on my shoulder that I didn't have already. I mean, I've always, <laughs> I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, I guess. I mean, I don't, I don't really think of it the way I think I've, you know, growing up, you know, this wasn't the first time that I was, uh, you know, that something negative had happened because of, you know, something like that. I mean, that might have been the first, like, really blatant instance of discrimination, but I grew up a tomboy. I mean, I, you know, I went to, I remember one year I went to camp and, the, you know, the girls didn't like me because I like to play sports and they wanted to skip all the sports and go down to the lake. And so, you know, I never really got along with my bunkmates. And I remember one time they, like, peed in my shampoo. That's a really embarrassing story to tell, but that, that happened. And, uh, you know, then I used the shampoo and then everybody laughed. And, you know, I mean, things like this would happen all the time. Oh, I mean, when, when you're, awful. you know, when you have a non-conforming gender presentation or understanding of your own gender, um... And, you know, I think kids can be awful. So that was kind of how I grew up. And I maybe I didn't understand it as, you know, in, in the words, you know, I hadn't taken women's studies yet. I didn't understand the words that I'm using, but it was definitely like people treated me differently, um, you know, my whole life for it. And so I've always been on guard, I think, because of that. Even and, and then the fact that it's one thing if kids, kids are, are sometimes, you know, kids can be mean to um, the kids are often mean to uh the kid who presents in a different mm-hmm. way, but you expect, I mean, certainly now, like it's one thing when I grew up, you know, uh, but, but when you grew up uh, right. and you were thinking now that, it, that the institutions themselves uh, have sort of become more accountable, but, but you found that that wasn't. It wasn't when, I mean, it was, it was a little bit accountable. I mean, they, you know, the, the coaches were disciplined yes. in some way, and so there was some accountability there. I mean, I think in the big instances, we're, we're getting better at holding people accountable, you know, uh, but only in the really big things. And so there's, you know, there's so much uh, yeah, I, I, that goes on under the surface. Yeah, and then just getting back to, to you in this situation. So you, you work incredibly hard, and you get no reward for it. Yeah. 
a lot of people would just like kind of fold up the tent then. I mean, that is the story you then sometimes hear and even in a movie where then the person kind of is lost for a while. I mean, were you able to quickly or like how were you able to then choose a bundle of things that you were going to continue to kind of like attack? I mean, you know, first of all, we're talking about a high school sport. We're not talking about like a career or anything like that. So, I mean, you know, I was always kind of had a lot of interests and um, it was kind of easy for me to not easy, but, it, you know, I just focused on the other things that I was kind of really interested in. I've always been interested in tons of things. So, you know, I took it, I guess, better than other people who maybe would have had more kind of riding on that one thing. Um, Did you have supportive parents? Yeah. Oh, my mom was livid. You know, my my mom is someone who also, you know, she was uh, she was an options trader, you know, one of the only women on the floor of the stock exchange, uh, played poker with all the guys all the time, um, played, you know, sports all the time. She was uh, she was a huge tomboy, too. So she, I think, was outraged, not just for me, but for herself, probably, too. I mean, I think she saw, you know, looking back, you know, it, probably she thought it would be better by then, too. You know, she thought, you know, sure. this was a thing where. You know, if she wanted to play baseball when she was growing up, she could never do that in an organized sports league. So the very fact that I could do it when I was younger was such a big thing. Um, I somehow grew up in this really lucky one thing because I did, you know, I'm 48. Uh, my cousin Karen, Katie, if you're listening, um, she was a great baseball player and somehow found her. She was the only girl and she played the whole time, little league. Awesome. And yeah, she was badass and like she was so good. That nobody could say. Like, she yeah. was just so good at hitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, nobody could say anything. Yeah. But she was also, I'll say, very, very feminine. Yeah. And, like, the way right. she, she was, a, a, like, in a lot of ways, she was a girl that a lot of boys would have wanted to date anyway. And then, right. you know, she was almost like the Bad News Bears character. So, yeah. So I think that makes a big difference. Um, honestly, I was going to say, talk about, like, gender presentation. I think, um, you know, even I see it kind of in my life now where... I think people expect certain things, but based on like, you know, how I'm going to act where they create a, you know, there, there's that thing where I'm probably on guard a little bit too much. And so, you know, I'm quicker to get angry. Um, and then the few instances, you know, where something happens where I lash out at someone, I think that's taken and kind of people run with that. And I think people are more likely to, that plays into the the thing that they're already thinking, which is, oh, you know, you have a butch lesbian here you know she's angry and she's you know hates men and she's gonna you know kind of fly off the handle or whatever and so you see that a lot where you know a lot of the criticism that I get or or, or expectations that people have you know people will say to me I get this this is the I get so many backhanded compliments the, the two most common ones that I get when people meet me and kind of spend some time with me are uh, number one is uh, you're much prettier in person um, and so <laughs> the second one is you're much nicer than I expected you to be. And I get that all the time. Well, it's what so do you, interesting. Where do you think the nice, where do you think that, that, uh, idea comes from? Like forgetting the prettier in person thing, it's just yeah. people not knowing what to say. Right. Um, <laughs> when they think you're pretty, you know, they just are like, uh, but, but why do you think, I, I, yeah. I, you know, what, what do you think causes a disconnect between the way you think of yourself and the way because I, I mean, I think I've thought about this a lot, and I think one of the things is, you know, I'm very intense at the poker table as I'm a competitor, and a lot of people are, and I think um, there's a lot more scrutiny placed on women. So you see a woman, especially one that looks like me, kind of, you know, quote unquote, angry, um, but that's really just my game face, and of course that doesn't translate to off the felt. But I think people aren't necessarily thinking in those uh, 
you know, the dichotomy of on the felt, off the felt. I mean, I think they're thinking of, um, you know, this is how she is. This must just be how she is. And so they they just assume that, you know, I mean, it. And, and what's weird is that you would never, with a, a man, you don't expect him to be docile. You don't expect him to be a certain way. So if he is acting like a competitor, you would never think, translate that to what you would assume about his personality. But for women... There is that. I difference. yeah, I can't dispute that. The um, there's no question that sort of like uh, if you took the exa- identical behavior in a, a man and a woman, the the way that people would talk about it is uh, different. But but I I think that there might be something else going on, which um, you're so comfortable talking about so many things, but I I'm, I'm, I don't know that you're comfortable talking about this aspect uh, also in uh, an immutable part, which is sometimes exceptionally bright people. Um get impatient when they see an outcome so much sooner than the other people. Do. Right. That's true. I do have that. I do have that tendency. I mean, I think I make a lot of, so my friend Maria, Maria Ho calls a doo-doo face. So we play, we play a lot of catchphrase, which is, you know, the game where you're, you know, basically trying to get people to guess things. And, um, I'm pretty good at the game. And so we'll play with people. And I used to have a really bad habit. Uh, she would say I still do, but I'm getting better. But I used to have a really bad habit. You know, people would kind of be bumbling over a clue. And I, you know, I knew it a long time ago. And I would sit there and just make the most awful faces like, God, this is so obvious. What are you well, doing? Well, right. And so if you call, if you're, um, if you're, if you're um, in a tournament yeah. and you call over the floor right. to make a ruling or yeah. if you're engaged, uh, like, have you tried to figure out? Um, how to manage the fact that maybe you're six steps ahead a lot of the time um, and to just understand that as as immutable as that is, is the fact that somebody else um, just can't get there as yeah, quickly. I mean, I think, I get, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's definitely an issue for me, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of times that I have to kind of you know, uh, once again, I'm I've worked on it a lot and I'm much better now, but Maria also uh, similar uh, because we had this running joke about duty face. We got put at the same tournament table one time, and um, there was a an, a guy that was involved in a hand, and um, you know it was such an obvious decision. It was like he was getting like ten to one odds or something. Seems like it was it was just it was annoying, you know. But whatever, it was his decision to make, and I, I wasn't. Mean, he was Hollywooding for a long time. No, I think he like didn't know the right decision, but it was a, it was an incredibly easy decision for any pro. But you he, have was, to he call. probably wasn't you a have pro. To call him you know, yeah, yeah, but he wasn't a pro. And so she secretly like filmed me as I was like making all these faces, like not like that he could see or anything like that. But I was just like, I guess she claimed that I was like rolling my eyes or something, which I probably did. But and, how do you think about that in terms of um, being a leader? Because yeah, and we'll get like in in terms of being a leader. Because, okay, the thing happens to you in the baseball team, and I'm not going to be so reductive as to draw a straight line, but then the pursuit at which you became one of the best in the world is like the ultimate in individual aggressive um, achievement, right? But you also have this gigantic interest in and uh, commitment to social justice and to being a leader. Mm -hmm. And have you thought about how to how to how to develop the, your leadership climate in a way or yeah i mean and that's the, i mean those those things are things climate. that you know i i think about those things all the time and you know that anything that you know i perceive as something that i need to work on like i'm working on it you know and i think that's a thing for me it, it is that impatience it's not i think uh, people kind of misinterpret it as sort of 
arrogance or a, a thinking that like I'm so much better than this person based on a face that I'm making or you know a comment that I'm making. A lot of times I like, speak to myself or kind of speak to someone else because I'm always thinking through kind of you know a hand or I'm just like very cerebral I guess when it comes to when I'm playing poker like I, I don't mean I, I just mean like I'm just constantly just thinking a mile a minute through strategy and stuff and sometimes like I can't help myself but kind of think out loud or talk to someone else about it and um and so it's not it, it's just something that I, and I think people misinterpret kind of what that means about you know kind of what I think about another person or something like that and so that's something that I've you know that I have to work on and and, and that actually it's really interesting because I think it runs parallel with the whole uh the gender presentation thing that I was talking about which is you know I feel like I need to work actually extra hard in a way to um to go out of my way to 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 be like extra pleasant or something like that, which is, you know, getting back to it's interesting because the, the conversation we had in the very beginning of this discussion was all about being straightforward. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that, you know, I just wear my heart on my sleeve. If I'm upset, I act upset. If I'm happy, I act happy. And, um, and I think it's like kind of, you know, creating a more desirable kind of outward public presentation of what may be going on inside that is something well, that is important. Yeah, I wonder or if it's somehow tapping into um tapping into um empathy for a type for whom you don't normally have empathy. Right. Well, I'm wonder, you know what I'm saying, in other words, not not uh like you obviously have a tremendous amount of empathy for any group of put upon people. Right. But white men I don't have much empathy for. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, that, that's the pull quote. By the way, yeah, I have no empathy for. I have no empathy for white men. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, you have um, a lot of white male friends. I do have some white male friends. I do. Yeah. No, I, I like white men. Um, not categorically, but I individually on an individual basis, I do. Um, no, I, I, I don't think it's a, a lack of empathy for the person. I think it's a. a I think it's um. Uh, I, I don't really know. It's it's hard to it's hard to explain. It's um. I would never want someone to feel bad about something that I did. Yeah, because in a way you don't, they're looking at you in a way that you're not looking at yourself, which is if, they, if they're feeling judged. Right. Or they're feeling dismissed, you're right. just actually going through a process in right. your own head. Yeah. And, exactly. it's, and I guess the only leap of empathy that's, po that's possible is to, you know, go to that one, that one level beyond, which is like, um, okay, because of my position... Right. Because of where I am in this poker room, yeah. because of like all that stuff, then, then if I'm making a face, I'm not just some woman at the table making a face. I'm Vanessa Selbs, three-time World Series of Poker right. bracelet winner, making a face, and that, and that, um, you know, and I, I find this with people who are outsiders often, which is that when you're comfortable being the rebellious outsider who has to fight their way in. It's very hard to consider yourself part of the establishment. Yeah, that's interesting. I yeah, that's really interesting. I think I think you're absolutely right on all. That's really perceptive on everything you've said. Um, I think part of it is that I don't see myself as uh, someone who's influential or deserving of celebrity or kind of remarkable in any particular way. I mean, I'm just me. I just play a game. You know, I kind of came into this uh, just by luck, by happenstance, um, you know, and I understand that people that are trying to excel at something um, can look up to those that have. And, you know, I think that I just view myself as a regular person. I think you're absolutely right. And I have to, 
you know, kind of translate that to how other people see me. I wish people would just see me as the, you know. Well, it's fine. I mean, it's just clear to me. Just, I person. guess the way you and I met and then, you know, going and playing golf together to hang out a little bit, I totally, um, I, I mean, I would, one of the first adjectives I would use to describe you uh, is like, you're a sweet person. But I can see why, no, it's, it's so clear <laughs> that you are. But, um, but not at the poker table. Right. No, which is how exactly. most people know not, you. Exactly. Not at the poker table. And that's, and, and, and you know, so I've had to go back and forth in my head. Like, is it worth getting people to like me more and just kind of figuring out how to be less of a competitor, as you say, or appear less of a competitor? Um, but I think I play better poker. You know, there's some people like Dale Negreanu who put on a great show at the table and they just chat everybody up. I don't focus well that way. I don't play that well when I'm chatting people up. Plus, I think one of my greatest strengths is putting fear into people that I'm going to raise them at any possible moment. And I think it makes people play really poorly against me. So I've basically um, had to think long and hard about whether it's important enough, basically, that, you know, people like me and that they don't feel bad, that I don't make them feel bad. Or whether it's more important that I separate the poker table from not the poker table and understand that, you know, people, if they can't see that difference, then that's unfortunate. But, you know, I'm doing my job at this table and that's and that's, you know, my bottom line is what I have to look out for. Well, yeah, because I I, but I wonder if it's about. um, I think humans often have a problem when we're trying when when we're. We can't synthesize. Um when we can't synthesize disparate aspects into a whole or accept that they're a whole of our, of ourselves and uh and you can't have two contrary wants at the same time right so you, you can't actually care about the judgment on you right. if you decide that you're going to play that way yeah right then it can't penetrate then you have to decide i'm not going to actually be hurt when they judge me that way. Right. It's just that that's where you get the, I think that's where the chip on my shoulder comes in because that's where it is, you know, a gender difference because, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I can see why you'd say that. And I think that in large part away from the poker table, I think that's super valid. I wonder how valid it is at the table because Helmuth gets painted with that. Mattisau gets painted with that. Uh, you know, um, throughout time, um, all sorts of people. It, Michael Jordan, I mean, he's was hated by the right. people. Right, right. People like it's. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm yeah, gonna. Yeah, go ahead, play back. I'm gonna play back because I don't think that I'm. I'm interested. I want to know. I don't think I'm like the Helmuth esque or Mattisau esque who are, you know, kind of have created a caricature. The Helmuth is a great example. He's created a caricature of himself basically, and he's made an image on being the poker brat, and he's that way on and off the table, and he's also berating people and yelling at them at the table, you know. First of all, I'm never doing things like that, despite what, you know, people may think or, uh, you know, what I may have done a long time ago. You know, I'm never outwardly, like, yelling at someone or anything like that. And, you know, but but beyond that, um, whatever happens at the table for me stays at the table. And so that's what I mean. It's like, I, you know, in terms of um, being able to differentiate, like, on-table actions from kind of off-table personality... Um, that's where I think that the difference in gender is because I see I see it with my other female friends that aren't necessarily as intense and they've chosen to be kind of more docile and entertaining and, you know, kind of chatty because they think that that's how, you know, people will like them and people will give them opportunities in the poker industry. But there's plenty of guys who, you know, act very serious at the poker table. I don't say a word to anybody, but um, it doesn't necessarily... 
you know, people aren't talking about it necessarily. Like, oh, did you see how mean he was or, you know, X, Y, and Z. Right. And and you feel that there's an extra burden placed yeah. upon you as a, a woman to be uh, outwardly kind or gregarious. Right. But the flip side of that, I mean, look, like, I'm not complaining. The flip side of that is, I mean, you know, we talk about the, the, X-rated, the, the X-ranked female poker player or whatever. You know, obviously, I've had a lot of success um, and... I'm at a position that I'm at because I'm one of the few female poker players that have been so successful. And so, you know, I get a lot of opportunities because of that. And so from a professional perspective, it's not really fair for me to say, well, like, poor me, you know, everyone's judging my behavior at the table. But of course, you know, I'm, you know, getting invited to, you know, all the events and you know everything that's happening because I'm like kind of the go to if you want like a woman poker player. Well, also, you have three, you do have three bracelets. (laughs) That's true. too. What did it, uh, what did it feel like to win your first World Series poker bracelet? Um, it was, what was the what was the event? Yeah, it was the uh, 2008. It was the World Series Poker Parliament Omaha event, and it was a crazy scene. I, I wasn't a you were 24 years old because oh, you're 30, and that, that was six years that ago. That's hard. I guess I was 23. I okay. was about to turn uh, 24, and um, it and was. Were you, wait, sorry, were you? In, I want to really set it. Were you in law school? No. You'd finished Yale as yeah. an undergrad. Okay, let me give you the one minute yeah, rundown. One minute rundown. F- went to Yale, finished uh, finished school went and did a research fellowship in Spain um, for a year, but mostly just played online poker. What was the fellowship? Uh, the Fulbright. And then... Um, oh, what was the Fulbright oh, sorry. in? What it was, was, it was in... Um, sorry. It was... Well, it was supposed to be studying gay marriage in Spain. It was actually supposed to be studying, like, when they were... Like, what factors would lead to the legalization of gay marriage in Spain. But then, like, while the application was in the process of being considered, they legalized gay marriage. So uh, I basically rewrote the whole thing and it was basically studying like the effects of gay marriage um in spain but um yeah so ended up just uh doing that playing a lot of poker i came back and did some management consulting and kind of quit that you had already fallen fully in love with poker that point. yeah oh my god yeah and so yeah i was working you know consulting like working many many hours a week and then just playing poker with all of my spare time and were you studying poker mm-hmm. yeah how um, mostly online poker forums, I would say, would be the primary way. Like at the t- at the time, there there weren't really resources available to study poker the way that there are now. There were some books, but it was mostly um, just like playing tons of hands online. I mean, I would be playing. You know, when I would play an online session, I'd play twelve, fourteen tables at one time, just getting an incredible amount of volume in and really uh, hammering down some of the fundamentals that would have to would that have to be second nature for you if you're going to play you know at a really high level what kind of fundamentals just like which hands to raise in which spots and the kind of which factors to look for when you decide if someone's weak or strong and how to you know the, all the math stuff that you have to just kind of memorize right off the bat and were you figuring out position play then were you talking to other people were you yeah. talking to other poker players so this was the this was the i would say what i attribute most of my success to is that you know a lot of you know, online poker was fairly new and all of these people online were starting to get really into it at the same time that I was. And so we would all go on two plus two forums, which at the time were a great place for people to talk about strategy. You know, at the time, I think it was a community of a few thousand people. Now it's like, you know, over a hundred thousand people and it's, it's not a great place anymore. But at the time it was a great place to kind of go on there and we would, you know, post a thread. And if you had a hand that was interesting and everybody would chime in and we would all just publicly, you know, they're all there. They're all the, all of that discussion took place on public forums, and that's all there. And those discussions were. Were really, you posting under your name? No, it was uh, my my online screen name, Fislexic Duck. Fislexic Duck. That's what you were posting. Fislexic Duck. That's what you were posting under. Yeah. 
Um, so you were doing that, building yeah. this sort of uh, knowledge. And did you, uh, how many hours a day were you playing, do you think? It, I mean, it really varied during college. It was tons and tons. And then, you know, when I was working, it was obviously less. But it was basically any any time that I wasn't, you know, I, I, mean, I don't know. It had to be at, at the at the at the minimum, it was probably forty hours a week when I was working a full time job. You know, it's probably a hundred <laughs> hours a week when I wasn't. So right, and you realize? Did you realize fairly quickly? Oh, I can be elite. No, no, no I, it never really happened like that. I think it was like I mean, this progression happened. You know, I started moving up in stakes. I mean, I I was kind of playing buy ins of two hundred dollars, and I was playing buy ins of five hundred dollars, and then all of a sudden. I'm playing stakes where I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, working a job, but I'm making way more from playing poker and, you know, I don't have to put on pants to go to work. So, you know, that's, that's really what it came down to. So then you start playing, you started playing, what was your biggest online bankroll then that people know? Like what, how much were you, what stakes were you playing at the uh, the highest level before you um, started really killing the live? Um, I was playing cash games anywhere between like 510 and 2550, no limit. So buy-ins of 1000 to $5,000 online. Um, for the most part. And so what happened to this? So that's who you were when you came back to you came back to America then? Yeah. Came back to the States, worked the job, and then I quit that, and then I went into poker. And then, so I was playing poker for about a year and a half, and I was I was terrible, actually. I, I, I decided to go to tournaments because I had done well at the World Series, and I got a backer, and the backer was 17 years old at the time. Wait, you had done well, I want to hear, you had done well at which World Series? So the 2006 World Series, I went to Las Vegas right after I turned, uh, I guess I, 21. no, no, I, that wouldn't have been right after I turned 21. It was right when I turned 22. And so right after I came back from Spain, I went to the World Series. And I was just there to play cash games and hang out with friends. And I played a few tournaments. And I think it was the very first tournament that I played, I think, was the one that I final tabled. And infamously uh, kind of bluffed off all of my chips into aces right. with a really bad hand. Um, Which I bet has actually paid dividends for you long yeah, term. But yeah, I, It's tough to say. There was a lot of money at that table. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, so then, you know, that and in the 2007 World Series, I finally tabled the ladies event and got third in the heads up event. So I always had success at the World Series, but because, you know, the World Series structures, the tournaments are very fast paced and they're very bluffing is really good. It's like almost necessary. They're not deep stacked or the the um, the blinds go up so quickly. Right. Exactly. The blinds go up quickly and you have to kind of you have pressure to make a move or else you're going to get blinded out because the. Because the, the stru- because of the structure. And so a lot of the players that are more patient don't fare as well. How did you learn to get comfortable with what you're putting at risk when you're playing as aggressively as you play? Like, did you always, were you always able to say, well, even if you get snapped off, okay, that I had to make that play? You know, I think, I mean, honestly, when what, how old was I when I started playing? I guess I was probably like, when I really started playing, I was probably like 19. You know, you're 19, 20 years old. You know, I don't know what the value of money is. You know, to me, it was like I would buy in and then I would have chips in front of me. And those chips were just chips. And I, I didn't know what I was risking. You know, it's a, it's much tougher to run a big bluff, you know, now. Well, not for me for some reason, but I have a lot of experience. But I get that, like, when you understand the value of money, it's a lot more difficult to run a big bluff. But for me, I was just trying to win the game. And at the time, I thought, you know, everybody was folding way too much. And I just said... Okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to make them fold. And that was kind of my game plan for like two years straight. Were you able to not get your ego involved? I'm just, as a a poker player, someone who's, you know, I've been um, obsessed with poker. I've never been a great player. Uh, At times I've been a winning player. And at times I've played with just people who are better than I am and been a losing player. Um, Were you able to keep your sort of the the ego piece in check or whatever it is that... uh, were you able to change gears when you saw that the aggression was being met with further aggression? Or were you able to then 
Well, so this is the story that I was about to tell you is how bad I was at poker for like a year and a half because I would do really well at the World Series tournament, but then I went and I got a backer and I played all of the, you know, I played a bunch of the World Poker Tour events, which are the much slower structure. Um, basically, they're five or six day events. You get a lot more chips. The patience pays off and you can wait for a good situation, a good spot, wait for your hand. And I didn't have that patience. And so I always, I would always run it up and build a huge stack on day one or two. And I would always bust before the money. And I would always bust on a gigantic bluff. And um, so I was joking, like every tournament was just a question of like how many chips I would get before inevitably bluffing them off. And what do you think, do you think that bluffing them off became a leak at a certain point? Or, oh yeah, for sure. Oh, I, mean, it was, it was, I mean, you just felt like I have to do this. It's who I am at no, the table. Or? I, no, it wasn't a personal thing. I just thought, I, I think it was that like. Um, not understanding kind of what level people were at. So, like, a lot of poker is, like, you can be a brilliant thinker, but if you're two steps ahead of your opponent instead of one step ahead, they're going to have the wrong reasoning than you and then make the wrong decision that's bad for you because, you know, you think that they think this, but they actually think this other thing. And so... That's a crucial concept, by the way, for people yeah. in all walks of life, yeah. right? Is... um to understand who you're talking to. Right, exactly. And so I would make a pl you know plays that against me would have been fantastic bluffs because they would have gotten me to fold against me every single time, but I wasn't playing against me and I think you know being new to live poker, I wasn't I didn't know uh how to differentiate between player types and how to understand, you know, there's so much psychology that goes into poker and now that's why I love playing live poker so much more than like personally um you know like online poker right? because for me, you know, so much of it is, you know, if I'm talking to someone, I'm getting to understand where they're, you know, where they're coming from, who they are, just kind of extrapolating a lot of that information into kind of what their poker background might be, what they're capable of, what kind of level of thinking they might be on. And I get that wrong a lot, but, you know, but, uh, you know, there's so much um, we call leveling, like trying to, you know, outsmart the other person that if you kind of give them an initial base of knowledge that's too high. Okay, like an easy example, like I made this classic mistake all the time. Um, I used to just make folds in spots where I was like, this bluff is such an obvious bluff that it would be so stupid that there's no way that he could be bluffing because it's just so stupid and obvious that he must just have something. And I would fold and they would just like be bluffing right, every single time. Right, you mean like time. when someone just on the river, you know, uh, like someone just makes this the real donk bet on the river. Right. After it's clear that they couldn't have, you know, there's one card in the deck. Yeah. Or like they like didn't raise on right. like a really draw, like, you know, on the turn when there was like straight draws and flush draws. And, and now they shove all in on the river when you make a weak bet or something, even though, you know, it's clear they don't have a very strong hand. So you make a little weak bet and then they go all in. Right. And it's just like so impossible for them to have any single hand that makes any sense. You know, when there's no hand that ever makes any sense, you're supposed to call. I mean, that's just like classic poker 101. Yeah, I played this horrible hand the other night yeah. against a really good card player, and um, I knew it was weird because I was a step. I knew after every action I took, I knew it was a mistake the second after I took it in this one hand. And uh, everyone likes to tell bad beat stories. I mean, this is a good beat story because I was right to have lost, but I got to this situation where I checked the turn, I knew I should have bet the turn. Uh, and then I felt that his card probably hit, but I bet the river anyway because what I was representing on the turn, I thought maybe he'd believe, you know what I, yeah. but, and he just looked at me, he's a guy I know well, and he just looked at me and he said, the only time you bet was when you were losing. <laughs> you know, the only time I bet in the hand yeah. was when I was behind. Yeah. Um, which is just, oh, was, I was miserable. Isn't it amazing how many decisions go into a single hand of poker? Like how many decisions, like if you're, you know, 
like if you're playing poorly, just how many decisions you can completely f up all the time. <laughs> oh, much. it's amazing when you can feel it happening. Yeah. You don't play a lot. You know, it's that I forget what book I read this in years ago, and it's so true. It's like if you just stop and ask yourself what you're really afraid of, it will really help you bet or not bet. I I don't you know right. like yeah. What's the secret fear that the person has it, or like that they don't have it? And right. If you can just be aware of what your actual gut is saying right. so often yeah. you act the opposite of that yeah 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 and kill yourself you know hurt yourself but the guy the person backs you the 17 year old yeah how'd they have all that money i think he like won an online tournament and then he like backed a couple people that ended up winning tournaments it's actually it was mike mcdonald who's now a very famous uh poker player who is not still 17 but he's still very young young and he so he backs you yeah he backs me and i go on to bust every tournament and then 2008 happens and i so I won. Getting back to your well, question, so what I won the, the, yeah, what yeah. happens? So you what 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 was the tournament in two thousand eight that you won the first bracelet? It was the Pot Limit Omaha uh, fifteen hundred buy an event. And, high or high low? Uh, just Not straight high. Straight yeah, high. straight high. And uh, and it was pretty crazy. I mean, I had all the chips. I was the chip leader from like the middle of the third level or fourth level through the end of the tournament. I think I lost the chip lead once at the final table, but it's pretty much just like steamrolled everybody. Um, Obviously, ran extremely hot. I think my aces held up like ten times in a row, pre-flop all in or something crazy. I mean, just you have to run hot to win this tournament like that. But what was so crazy about the final table was um, when we got heads up, my opponent um, had been drinking the whole time and he was completely wasted, and he starts just like betting the pot blind every single hand. And I had him going into the heads up. I had him out chipped like four to one or something like that. And so he's like, he's like, I'm, I bet the pot blind, and I look down and I have aces. I'm like, okay, I'm all in. And, uh, or no, sorry, that wasn't it. Um, I looked at, sorry, I had called with Jack 10, 8, 3, and I, I, whatever, I flopped a straight draw, like a rap straight draw. So I, he bets the pop line. So I'm like, okay, I'm all in. He looks down. He's like, oh, I have aces. Okay, I call. And the next hand, like, he bets the pop blind. I end up flopping, like, middle pair of flush draw and some other stuff. So I go all in. He looks down. And he's like, oh, I have a set. I call. <laughs> like, he was just, you know, and then the tournament director pulled him, took him aside and said, Jamie, you know, you're playing for a bracelet. Don't you think you should take this more seriously? Which, you know, almost messed him up. You think? I don't know what happened. So yeah, he came in. He kind of. We took a break. He took a breath. He stopped playing like that. And then, yeah. Then I. He was folding way too much. Actually, once he was playing normally. What so. did it? So when you won. Yeah. What did that like? What did that feel like to you? Um, I don't know. You never really feel like anything until I don't. Never really hits me until like after the fact. I mean, you know, not having really been a tournament player, it didn't really feel. I, I didn't really understand. Like, I, it wasn't like it was something I was searching for or questing for. It was just kind of, just kind of happened. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it really, I mean, it was it was a rush. It's definitely a rush to win any tournament. But, you know, it was so quick. And, like, the tournament was three days. And um, I don't know. It, and when did you win your second tournament? Uh, 2010. And? Wait, 2012. I should know this. 2012. And then you won a couple. And then I won in 2014. Right. This year. Um, and even if the bracelet wasn't the thing, what about the fact that you just won all this money? Didn't that feel, did it feel amazing, strange? Were you comfortable with it? I mean, if we're being totally honest here, it wasn't that much money because, you know, I, like I said, I had, I was backed at the time and, you know, I won it, you know, I had a decent series because I won that tournament. I think it was like 230 or something like that. And I also got third in the heads up that same year again. Um, and so that was another like one something. And so I think I made like, you know, maybe almost $400,000 of World Series, but I had, you know, been, been, you know, 
bluffing off stacks at the World Poker Tour all year, so I had to pay back all of those buy-ins that I right. wasted doing that, and then I had to split the profits with my backer, and I think all told I came out of it you know, probably just barely over 100000 which obviously is a lot of money, but when you're talking about gambling sure. the sums that we're gambling, you know, it, it, it wasn't like that huge. I would say like that in terms of all the tournaments that I've won, interestingly enough, that was probably like the one that I was least affected by because it wasn't something that I was working towards. I wasn't a tournament player. You know, everything else after that now, it's like I go to the World Series and I'm trying to win. I'm trying to win bracelets. I feel I feel like I should be winning more now. You know, at the time there was no expectation because I didn't really know what I was doing. And now that I know what I'm doing, I think there's a lot more pressure and there's a lot more expectation. It's a lot more satisfying. Do you still I'm... love playing? Yeah. I definitely love it. I love it all the time. I mean, you know, you referenced the, the guy who won the one drop this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Dan, Dan Coleman. Right. And, you know, he he famously made a, a sort of a speech at the end mm-hmm. that was about his ambivalence, um, about earning his living and this much money, even if he only kept a million dollars, he still made a million dollars, and about being somebody that people might look up to for playing a game. And, and I know there's another instance of having a couple of different thoughts that are equally valid in your head because you said something about this earlier in the conversation. You know, what's yours? And I, I know you said, oh, it's, it's, it's much closer to chess, and I agree with you for someone like you. Um, but if I'm playing against you, that's like me playing against the house. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the odds are better than 53 to 47 that you're going to win. Um, but 90, 95% of poker players are winning poker players. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. But what I'm saying, you know, and, and I guess his, his ambivalence was just about, look, I, I can't deny that people can ruin their lives. You know, and I, like, yeah. I, I know, uh, Dave and I wrote this movie that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've told me you basically started playing because you saw the movie. Yeah, and, definitely. So I love, you know, and I know that, like, all these champion poker players got inspired by that. But I also know all these other people, like, you know, they could have wrecked their lives. Right. So I'm just wondering how you've processed this ambivalence. How I've processed or, his you know, your own or what my own thoughts your on own the matter are? Yeah, because I've heard you say in interviews that, that at times you've wondered if it's what you should do with your life. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult. I think for me, far more, I, I, I'm not as troubled by the idea of like the problem gamblers that play poker because I think um, if someone has a gambling addiction, poker is probably the weirdest and most difficult way to satisfy that. Like, it's not that good a rush like you're sitting around waiting for so long you know the people that are truly the gambling addicts mostly go play other games where you're gambling a lot more money a lot quicker um you know pokers like i said more like chess more decisions obviously there's a gambling aspect to it and people there are negative you know stories that are negative but you know that's just true in kind of all walks of life i think my personal ambivalence as you put it with playing poker is more just the idea of you know making a career at something that's like a zero-sum game um, just feeling like a kind of moral obligation to kind yeah. of create something for the world, whether it's, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean fighting for social justice. It could mean even even like a, a business owner, you know, at least is kind of bringing something into the world in a way that they're they're leaving it yeah, different than they left it. by zero-sum game, you mean that when you win, somebody else loses. Exactly, yeah. And that... Um, You're not adding any utility to the world. Like as from a strictly utilitarian perspective, you know... It's it's not a positive value. I mean, some people might say the entertainment value. It that is. I'm I was going to say strictly utilitarian value. Uh, it's actually easier to argue for some right. value because 
of the entertainment piece. Right. Yeah, for sure. And there's there's some of that, like for especially for what I'm doing now, you know, there's a large entertainment component of it. You know, I think um, people enjoy watching me play. And that, first of all, they have fun playing poker. Everyone has fun playing poker. So there's that element of it. But also the entire entertainment industry of poker that has been created. But yeah, but the sure. fair question is, yes, somebody with your talents yeah. could be uh, in a much more direct way adding a kind of... Um, what would be conventionally considered value to right. society. But then, it, once again, I mean, uh, you know, so I go back and forth between, you know, being, deciding whether, like, the utilitarian understanding is the best one because it, from from that angle, if I'm able to make, you know, millions of dollars, isn't it better to kind of take that out of the hands of someone who would do far worse things with it and then use that money to kind of pay for other people to do work that, you know, could be done by other people? I'm going to say probably that, First piece of it taking out of someone's hand to do worse with it is maybe conjecture, <laughs> um, because you don't know that they would do something worse with it. You know, on average, I know that on average, I know that the, uh, probabilistically, I don't. Yeah, you're right. Uh, There's conjecture, uh, but there's conjecture and everything. Nothing certainty. But I think if I, I know that the person, you know, I know that I'm a, a charitable person. I like to use my money sure. for really good things, and so I know probabilistically. That if the money is in my hands, there's a higher likelihood that that money will go to good use in society than if the money is in someone else's Yeah, hands. and I bet you that there's another uh, utilitarian piece of it that I, I wonder if you're thinking about. I, I imagine uh, you do it on some level, which is that if people, if everybody could pursue the thing that brings them great joy, there'd be a, a lot less toxicity. <laughs> That's true, too. And so how are you happier when you go home to your wife? How are you happier when you're with your friends? You know, how do you feel fulfilled at the end of the day? And I know it's by also by doing a lot of different things, but how do you feel like you're using the parts of yourself uh, that you most value or that turn you on the most? Uh, you know, how do you um, release that stuff and, and, and use it to, uh, to give yourself the chance at, at, at having like a joyous yeah. Life and isn't there just a value in in that would be a que- you know a question I would ask. Yeah, sure. That's definitely no. That's absolutely true. And I think, um, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean that to me that's like enough. I mean, in a way, enough right. reason as long as you're not, you know, especially if you don't think you're harming other people. Well, I think also, and I don't begrudge anyone for any career they've chosen or anything like that. Um, not poker players, not, you know, options traders, any, anything, any, any other kind of profession like that. I mean, I think people feel their own kind of sense of purpose. And for me, I think I just wouldn't be fulfilled a hundred percent if that's all I were doing, but I don't think that that's anyone, you know, I'm not judging anybody else for, for doing that. You know, if that's what they're trying to do, I think people feel different, you know, differently about a lot of different things. And a lot of the, the reason that I feel the different sense of purpose that I do is, probably a lot of the way I grew up and, you know, the baseball story and all of that kind of has informed the way that my life has been shaped. But I understand that that's not the case with everybody and that's fine. What's the process by which you take personal account? Like, uh, because it seems like you are someone who checks in with yourself Mm -hmm. to try to figure out where you are, Mm -hmm. um, not just in poker and life. Right. And And people, this is a question that comes up, which is like, you know, how do you, how do you fix yourself on the, how do you not, not heal yourself, but I mean, how do you fix yourself as a, a point on a graph at various times? Like, do you journal? Do you have like long conversations with certain friends? Like, what do you do to sort of like measure where you are and then decide where you want to go? 
It's a great question. That's something that, you know, I mean, my wife is great at like talking through things with me. So it's a lot of conversations with her. She's always trying to get me to write more because I don't really. But that, I know that's a great way to do that kind of stuff. But I'm actually um, I'm about to start working with a life coach, actually, um, because that's for that exact reason. I'm a little skeptical. You see a little skepticism in your face. But um, no, no, I'm oh, okay. uh, no, because I think that you've you've made certain big turns at various yeah. points where it seems like you did look in and go, OK, I want to change and yeah. not be this and I want to be that. Right. I think what's difficult is I feel pulled in so many different directions. So many people, you know, I'm so like I'm interested in a lot of things and I think people come to me and say, hey, do you want to do this thing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that thing. And then do you want to do this thing? And yeah, yeah I want to do that thing. And I think, um, you know, whenever you are that kind of person that has so many interests, I think it's important to kind of be really purposeful about what is the most, like kind of what direction you want your life, your career, everything to go, because it's easy to kind of do what's right in front of you, do what's easy. And, um, you know, I think learning how to say no to things and learning how to use your time really well is, I think it's a really difficult skill and something that, you know, as a, as a young person who, you know, when you don't have a boss telling you what to do or how to organize or manage your time. And, you know, I think it's, difficult for later. I think a lot of poker players see, you know, have these exact same problems, which are, um, not really feeling like, uh, kind of a, they have a grasp or, uh, a, like a lot of agency in their own lives. Like you're kind of just doing the next thing, like what, because in absence of making some bigger decisions, which is crazy because the entire reason that we play poker is because we want to have this freedom. So if you're not using this time and this freedom to direct your life the way that it wants to go, then it seems to be a waste. But well, also it must be extra hard because people who are playing poker at such an elite level are trying to play an optimal game and yeah. the struggle to be perfect. Right. And so then when you take your foot off the gas at that pursuit, it's like, well, wait, where am, where am I? And why can't this all be optimized? Why can't right. I be optimizing this? Exactly. How did you, I wasn't looking at you skeptically about life coach. Like I, um, you know, Tony Robbins has had a big impact on my life and yeah. I've gotten to spend like time with him mm-hmm. and uh, have found stuff of real value there. And I always have looked for mentors along the way in my life mm-hmm. to talk to. Um, you know, I had Seth Godin in here the other day. He was a genius at this stuff. Um at figuring out, like, you know, uh, where you need to go and why. And it's part of this conversation. But choosing that person is really important. Right. The right one. Yeah. Do you have specific goal? Like, did you go to the person with, like, okay, I, I need to figure out the next stage or? It's it's that. It's partly, like, helping me kind of figure out the next stage and, um, you know, just helping me organize. Like, I probably could do it if I had a better system. Like, I talk enough about the things that I'm interested in and what I want to do. I mean, even within poker, it's such a, it's a career that offers so many different types of things. I mean, I have friends that have gone on to make movies about poker, to write books, to offer webinars, to make poker videos. I mean, there, it's such a self-directed career and there are so many opportunities there that, you know, I, I think just someone to kind of be a sounding board to help me figure out what I would really like the most and be the best at and so i can kind of focus things uh from a career perspective oh yeah the fact that you haven't written a book on poker is crazy yeah well especially because you're aggressive bluffing mm-hmm. i mean you know the winning is female poker player but also you know you could say i'm the, the biggest bluffer in the world right um that's, yeah by the way something to translate to the business world you yeah know, the that's business true world too i mean it's definitely something i'm thinking about for the future is you know writing books i mean i think um part of the thing with uh, the reason I haven't written a book yet and the reason I haven't, like, made videos in a while is honestly, like, I, you know, 
I feel like I have a pretty unique style, and I if I don't want to give away information. Fair enough. You know what? So. Uh, just a couple more questions, and I'll let you go. What, what do you? What is it that you can get playing poker that you can't get elsewhere? I mean, it's such a. It's just poker's just everything. I mean, poker is intensely competitive, and for everyone you know that likes that, um, it, it's it's challenging. You can kind of push yourself to. Uh, you can push yourself harder in one pursuit, like within one game of poker, or if you get bored learning that game, you can go learn other games and really challenge yourself that way. So it's intellectually challenging. There are so many different aspects of what's challenging about it and ways that you can be good at it, um, you know, in terms of, like I said, you know, whether it's psychology or improving your logic skills or your memory or, you know, there are so many different ways to, to constantly push yourself. So I really love that aspect of it. And... Um, and I guess I could get that elsewhere, but I just, you know, there's this strategy. I mean, I, I've just always been really into games and I think if there were another game that, you know, if, you know, if I could play Candy Crush for millions of dollars, I would probably do that too. Right. But is it, do you find yourself as present in other, is it, is it when you feel hyper present where you're actually there and in the moment or... Do you like, you know, sometimes like when people write, they have these moments where they're so present that it's almost like they're here and they're somewhere else at the same time. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's different for everyone. For me, I am really, really good under pressure and I thrive under pressure. So for me, when I'm deep in a tournament, that's when I'm like my most present of anyone or of, of any other time in my life. Right. Like, you feel totally alive, connected, yeah, present. Yeah. And, and that's, I, so that's the emotion that you're chasing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels, so that's the thing that like, you know, the unfortunate thing about poker is you have to play a lot of tournaments to go deep. You know, I think when, you know, the, the day ones, the day twos can get kind of, you know, uh, monotonous sometimes but when you're there's no feeling like when you're really deep in a poker tournament and every decision is so vital and a lot of people you know really choke under that pressure and you know i've just for some reason i think it's because i you know am so competitive and i have done so well in kind of other forms of competition games sports stuff like that i really thrive that way and i love it you know that's clear because uh and, and we can end on this because you know you and i played golf with yeah. uh, my filmmaking partner, Dave, and a pro named Colin, who's a great guy. And uh, um, <laughs> we, you and I made a $10 bet, and it was uh, who could hit the ball in the fairway the furthest. You had to, who could hit it the farthest on this one hole, right? And, uh, yeah. or who hit the best drive? Yeah, the best drive. But you had to be in the fairway. And right. I hit first, and mine didn't go in the mm -hmm. fairway. And you stepped up to hit, and all you had to do was put it in the fairway, and Let's be honest, you suck at golf, basically. <laughs> That's a little strong. You're not very good at golf. <laughs> there we go. And, uh, but all you had to do was put it in the fairway. And I said to you, you want to make it 50 bucks. And you turned around and you weren't kidding. And you said, I would take it all the way up to like 350. I might even go to a half a million. <laughs> and you were serious. Yeah. You I mean, I know, I, you know, I didn't think you would do it, but yeah. Yeah, but if That's I would have said $100,000, you would have said yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would never have said $100,000, but um, but because you know in that moment you could still yourself, right? Yeah. And you could just perform and produce under that kind of pressure. Yeah. And it's also just, um, well, that was just like I have an edge, so I'm going to push it. And the bigger the edge, the more I want to gamble on it, basically.
you had the edge. I mean, you knew 70% I can hit it in the, you yeah. were going to hit it in the fairway. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I, I don't think it was, was it once you had already hit it? I don't even remember. It was, oh, it was something where I, yeah, it was like 75 or 80% favorite at that point. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. you would have just done that because yeah, you were able sure. to translate that, to transfer that, uh, that way of looking at gaming, game theory to sort of every, everything, yeah. every kind of competitive. Yeah. Engagement. Absolutely. Well, golf and poker, you know, they are similar in those ways. There's so much like just pushing, pushing edges and performing under pressure. And, and that's, that's the biggest thing. And uh, well, it's really fun. The, the next time that I'm going to go play in a big poker game, um, I, I need you to coach me. <laughs> that's great. I need the coaching because I could learn a lot from you. Vanessa, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, um, absolutely. Can't wait to see. When's the next big tournament you're playing in? Hmm. Not for a while, actually. I'm actually... Ugh, um, are, you, are you going out to the World Series for the final table in November? Uh, no, I won't be there. Um, the next tournament is probably going to be EPT Prague, which is not till December. All right. And so uh, if you want to see her, go there to see Vanessa Selps. You can find Vanessa on Twitter at Vanessa underscore? Nope, just Vanessa Selps. And uh, my website, VanessaSelpsPoker.com. And are you, do, you co- do you do coaching? Um, I do coaching very selectively. Not that much, but yes, technically I do coaching. You can find me uh, <laughs> at Brian Koppelman, and um, I don't know if you make a good enough argument to me. Maybe I'll argue your case to Vanessa of why she should coach you. Uh, thank you for listening. Vanessa, thanks for being here, and um, let's play golf soon, and right. um, the maximum I'm willing to lose is $100. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.